0: Good morning. morning. So last week in Easter, we, we talked about the road to Emmaus and we talked about those two men who were surprised that they were right in the presence of God Almighty and they had no idea. And one of the verses that we read, I want to repeat because it kind of goes along with today's sermon. Luke 24, 27 says... And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. We learned that every narrative in the Old Testament, every single shadow of things to come that was spelled out in the Old Testament was about Jesus Christ. They were shadows, but Jesus is the substance. He is the meaning of the Bible. And one of those shadows that we see within the Old Testament is circumcision. GotQuestions.org said this, that circumcision is the physical sign of the covenant that God made between he and Abraham. Baptism, in some sense, is the sign of the new covenant that God has made with his body, the church. However... While there are some parallels between baptism and circumcision, catch this most important thing of all the message. They symbolize two very different covenants. There was teaching going on in the town of Colossae during the time that Paul wrote this letter that later became known as the Colossian heresy. This is what F.F. Bruce said about that. He said the Colossian heresy was a local variety of Judaism which had been fused together with this philosophy of non-Jewish origin, and basically it became a simple form of Gnosticism. This was presented as a form of advanced teaching, catch this, for the spiritual elite. In other words, they were trying to obtain perfection through secret knowledge. Keep that in the back of your mind as you open your Bibles with me this morning to Colossians chapter 2 as we go back to that verse-by-verse study of that epistle. Before the Easter break, we learned in the book of Colossians that we're complete in Christ. And we learned that even though Paul had never been to the church of Colossae, he agonized in prayer for these saints. He loved them so much. And so he instructed them, walk in Christ. Walk in Christ. Yes, we receive salvation by grace through faith, but then we're to walk in Christ. Because serving Jesus, and this may be a surprise to some folks, but serving Jesus is not about sitting, it's about walking. You see, a Christian, we learned, cannot live a disciplined life apart from the Holy Spirit living in us. Then Paul went on to say, be rooted and grounded in Christ, because a rooted, grounded, grateful believer will not be led astray. It's impossible. And then finally, we ended with the fullness of Christ. Colossians 2.9 says, all of the fullness of God lives bodily in Christ. And then the second part of that's for us. And you are complete in Him. You lack no good thing in Christ. And so today's passage is going to tell us more about our position in Christ and how it does not come from following some legalistic rules, but rather it comes because Christ paid the price for it. That's how we get our position. So, this teaching on circumcision, you know, it's just one of those things in the Old Testament that some people just can't get through their head. They think somehow we still have to do this in order to earn God's favor. We still have to hold certain rights and keep the Sabbath day and all these wonderful things. And Paul's like, let's stop that right now. And I'm going to try to teach you that all you need is simple faith in Jesus Christ. So if you have your sermon notes, they're in your bulletin. Roman numeral one, Circumcision. If your Bibles are open, Colossians chapter 2, let's begin at verse 11. The Apostle Paul says, In him you were also circumcised, catch this, with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So for proper context, let's find out where this circumcision first came into being. And when God was speaking to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 17 in verse 9, it says, And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout the generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And it catch this shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you speaking to Abraham. Okay, between me and you. He who is eight days old, you shall circumcise every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money must be circumcised. And my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. Again, with Abraham. Okay, verse 14 of Genesis 17 says, And the uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. There in your notes, Circumcision was the cutting off of the flesh as a sign and covenant with the Lord. It also represents the fact that God wants to be Lord of even the most intimate parts of your life. How many of us think we have those secret areas of our life that God doesn't know about? You know, there's those areas, those little areas, you know, God, I've given you my whole heart, except... And God says, that's the one I want. Notice verse 11 says, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by how? The circumcision of Christ. So circumcision was an outward sign of an inward decision made to dedicate oneself to the Lord. By the way, that's how now we receive Christ's circumcision. In other words, putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by faith in Christ. Even though this was for Jewish folks, Old Testament law, and it's not for the church, there are some practical applications we can glean from this passage as well. So let's talk about three things that circumcision can teach us. A, there in your notes, our bodies belong to the Lord. Our bodies belong to the Lord. Paul asked a rhetorical question in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. He said, or do you not know? Are you unaware that your body is the temple, the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. So what Paul was saying was, now that you've given your heart to Jesus Christ, be very careful what you do with your body, because your body belongs to the Lord. And some people don't understand that since I've spiritually given myself to the Lord, I also have physically given myself to the Lord. B, true circumcision represents the cutting away of the flesh out of our hearts, out of our hearts. Again, Colossians two eleven, by putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. In the law, Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Uh, again, the sign of the cutting away of the flesh was simply an outward sign showing something that has already taken place in your heart. God has circumcised my heart, so the Jews would then circumcise their child on the eighth day as a sign of that. The actual cutting away of the actual flesh did nothing if the heart didn't match. See, when I am weak, he is strong. 2nd Corinthians 12:9. One of my favorite passages to take people when people say God heals every single time, God would never not heal. I love to take them to this passage because here's where the Apostle Paul said, "I had a thorn in the flesh, three times, and I begged God over and over again, take the thorn from me." And God said, "Sit down and be quiet, Paul." Rich O'Toole version. 2nd Corinthians 12:9. God said to him, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Paul, I need you weak, because then you're strong in the Lord. In my thinking, weakness is not a good thing. I hate weakness. Hate it. Can't stand it. But it's usually when God wears me out, then he can finally use me. It's usually when God gets me to a place of where my arrogance and and self-sufficiency dies that he can finally use me. I want you to think about the children of Israel when they were in Egypt and they're about to cross over the Jordan River into the promised land. God did something really, really in the eyes of a human being dumb. But God has plans that we don't understand, Right. Joshua 5.1 says when all the kings of the Amorites who were on the west side of the Jordan and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan from before the children of Israel until we had crossed over, catch this, that their hearts melted and there was no spirit left any longer in them because of the children of Israel. So the enemies of Israel, their hearts are melting. They're scared. They know God's with these people. And so they're like terrified. Oh, no. God has sent these people. So in their mind, they're like, perfect time to attack. Our enemies are scared and weak and hiding. Go get them. But God did something else. And many people think this is crazy. So they probably come to Joshua at that time and they say, Hey, we're military leaders for you, Joshua. Let's get after them. This is a perfect time. And Joshua 5.3, it says this. So Joshua made flint knives for himself and circumcised the sons of Israel at the hill of the foreskins. He did what? <laughs> we're about to go to war. God has scared our enemies, taken all the spirit out of their heart. They're scared to death. Let's attack. No, let's all go through a surgical procedure. (laughs) Let's inflict our army with this pain in the flesh before. And and could you just imagine? No, forget it. Two short weeks from that very time, two short weeks later, God's going to tell them to march around Jericho. Attack Jericho? No. March around Jericho. What? God, their hearts melted. They're scared. We should attack, but instead we go through a surgery. And now I'm going to march around the city? God, I don't understand you at all. You know, God's method sometimes seems like foolishness to us. Because we just don't understand his plans. But God brought such a huge victory there in Jericho because they obeyed. And and sometimes we just don't get that. And so when I am weak, God is strong and he proves himself over and over and over again. But back to our passage. To put this in proper context, you need to remember that most of the believers there in Colossae were Gentile believers. Okay. And they were not circumcised. In the book of Acts, Paul had just finished his first missionary journey and he comes across these Jewish believers who basically come to Paul and the rest of the leaders and they said, all of those Gentiles who just came to Christ need to obey the law of Moses plus have faith in Christ in order to be saved. Acts 15:1. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. So unless I follow the law, I cannot be saved. So this big controversy breaks out. And because of this controversy, this is how the first church council was formed to discuss this very matter. There in your notes, the question the council at Jerusalem in Acts 15 had to answer was, is the cross of Christ enough to provide salvation or is there something else needed? Is it the cross plus or minus nothing, or is there something else needed for a Gentile? Now, we know that Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says that we're saved by grace through faith, and that even our faith is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Grace, unmerited favor by God. God alone forgives, God alone loves, God alone saves, and it's not based on what we do or who we are. It's based on who He is and what He has done, the finished work of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Our best efforts, our hardest work cannot earn us His righteousness. Here's what I have found, and here's a good test, folks. Someone knocks on your door and they're promoting Bible reading. Or somebody else and you get into this discussion. What must I do to be saved? Here is where evangelical Christianity, where the rubber meets the road. What must I do to be saved? That's such an important question. Today, there's a lot of false religions and false teachers who would add to the work of the cross. Acts fifteen seven, And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, men and brethren... You know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them purifying their hearts by faith. What people fail to understand is that folks in the Old Testament and folks in the New Testament all got saved the same way. It it was by grace through faith. Now, God made a certain covenant with them to do one thing and then covenant with us that he did it all. In our passage, again, in him, you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. In other words, it was a something done to your heart. Vaughn said our spiritual circumcision meant the putting off of the old man. There in your notes. The Greek word for putting off a double compound denotes both stripping off and casting away. The imagery is that of discarding or being divested of a filthy piece of clothing. So God Strips it off and casts it away. And in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, he says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. That's what happened to you by faith when you received Jesus Christ. He ripped off that old man and then he cast it away and he made you a brand new creation. Wiersbe said, Paul made it clear that the Christian is not subject to any Old Testament rituals or legal system and it can do you no good spiritually whatsoever. Christ alone is sufficient. Christ alone will meet your every spiritual need and all the fullness of God's faithfulness lives in him. So now, here we are church. We don't need to be circumcised to come to Christ. We don't need to keep the Old Testament law. But what is our outward symbol to show that we have a new circumcised heart? Roman numeral two, baptism. Baptism. Look at verse 12. Paul goes on and says, Buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith. How were you raised with him? Through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. J. Vernon McGee said, when Christ died, I died. He took my place. And when he was raised, we were raised with him, and now we're joined to the living Christ. There in your notes, it's so important to keep in mind that no outward ceremony brings us to Christ. The issue is whether or not we are born again, whether or not we know Christ as Savior. So before we break down this passage, I'm going to give kind of a reminder what we believe about water baptism at Living Faith Fellowship. Some of this may be review, but it's good for you. Why do I know it's good for you? Because God told me it was good for you. So biblically, Baptism is a literal and a figurative meaning. A person is saved and at the moment of salvation, they are baptized into the family of God spiritually right now. Instantly. The moment you trust Christ, you are baptized into his family right now. And you go, I didn't see that happen. You're right. You did not see it happen. Many people get confused between a spiritual baptism that happens at the moment of salvation and that a water baptism, which is a public display of what has already happened in my heart. And so they get this confusion going on. When Paul says there's only one baptism, what do you mean there's two baptisms? No, it's just like communion. Jesus took the cross once, but the symbol we celebrate weekly. Baptism happens once at the moment of salvation and then publicly we go through a ceremony. It's kind of like a Geico commercial. (laughs) Scoop, there it is. (laughs) John Beckel said, the Bible uses the baptism of the spirit to refer to one of the wonderful things that God does the instant we trust Christ for salvation. We enter his family. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, again, the Apostle Paul, for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we've all been made to drink into one spirit. So again, here at Living Faith, we believe, and biblically, by the way, that a water baptism is a public announcement of a private decision that's happened already in your heart. There in your notes, A believer's water baptism is for someone who has placed their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Pretty much every time I've done a baptism, I've pointed out these passages, but the perfect picture of what baptism is is found in Acts chapter 8. In that passage, Philip comes upon an Ethiopian man who's reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, and as he's reading... They come upon a body of water, and the Ethiopian man asks Philip, Can I be baptized, or what prevents me from being baptized? Acts 8.37, then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still, and both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and he baptized him. So notice the sequence of events. First, someone has to believe on Jesus for salvation. Then they let five or six years go by until the Lord convicts them. No! Someone places their faith in Jesus Christ and immediately they obey by going into the water and being baptized. And you would say, but this brand new believer, he doesn't understand the Trinity yet. This brand new believer doesn't understand the kenosis theory yet. Let's get him about 10 years of theology and then put him in the water. No. By simple faith, he trusts Christ, believes that he's saved because of what Christ did on the cross. We dunk him right now. We dunk him. Outward expression of an inward decision. And so why should someone be baptized? Because it was not only a command given by Jesus Christ... It was a command obeyed by Jesus Christ. My two oldest sons were Marines. I guess they're still Marines because you can't say they were. But they were Marines, right? And I could just imagine both of them did multiple tours over in the Middle East. And I could just imagine this scenario playing out, right? Here's my my son. My one son was a gunner on an LAV. And so he's on the gunner and his commanding officer says, boy, take out that target. Well... When I feel like it, I'll do that. (laughs) That's kind of what some of us do with this command by Jesus Christ. He's our commanding officer. And Jesus says, be baptized immediately after salvation. And we go, I'm kind of embarrassed. (laughs) I don't like crowds. Can I tell you something? Either do I. (laughs) Here I am. (laughs) Do this as an outward expression of what's happened in your heart. It's a picture of the washing away of our sins. It's a picture of that. It's dying to our old self and our old way of life and beginning a new life in Christ. It's all a picture, right? And since it's a representation of a decision that's happened within the heart, we don't baptize children before the age of accountability. And some people would ask why. We dedicate children as to the Lord, We pray over their parents. We dedicate the child. But we don't baptize children because they're not old enough to have made that decision to follow Christ for themselves. Some other denominations disagree, and that's okay. Biblically, you don't see that. Biblically, what you see is a person coming to faith first and then instantly baptized. We also believe that children before the age of accountability are not held accountable for their sins until they're at an age where they can understand and accept or reject God for themselves. So we encourage people, do it because of your faith. I remember one time we had a family and they brought like five kids with them, all older teenagers. And the mom said, all these kids want to be baptized. I took them in my office. I began to talk to them. And the oldest boy was like, I'm not there. And mom wanted him baptized, especially him. I said, hey, won't you go wait out there for me? I came back out and told mom, these three gave all the right answer. He did not. and He's not ready. And I will not baptize him if it's not his faith. I'm not baptizing him for you. But notice, what did Paul mean here in Colossians when it says buried with him in baptism? Again, baptism illustrates our identification with the death and resurrection of Christ. Romans 6, 3, Paul said, Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were actually baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk In the newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. So coming out of the water, going down the water is just like I'm dead, I'm being buried. Coming out represents I'm raising up to new life in Christ. And so we identify with his death and resurrection. And why do we do that? Roman numeral three, because Jesus paid the bill. Jesus paid the bill. Look at verse 13. And you, you could say, put your name right there, and you... Being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, having made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This sounds just like Ephesians 2.1. And you he made alive with him who were dead. What was my state before faith in Christ? You were spiritually dead. You were dead. No self-improvement brings back a dead person. Before a person comes to Christ spiritually, they're dead. They're dead. There's no getting around it. There in your notes, Jay Vernon McGee said, Salvation is not the improvement of the old nature. It is the impartation of a new nature. And the rebirth happens at the moment, again, that I trust what Jesus did. That's when it happens. Warren Wiersbe said, the practical application is clear. Since we are identified with Christ and he is the fullness of God, what more do we need? There in your notes, we have experienced the energy of God through faith in Christ. So why turn to the deadness of the law? God has forgiven us all of our trespasses so that we have a perfect standing before him. You know, there's a a neat statement. I think this is the only place I've ever seen it used was the handwriting of requirements. You see, it not only speaks of the letter of the law, the handwriting of the law, but it also includes a list of our sins, a debt that we had before a holy God, a debt that no one could pay off. It it speaks of a written document, like in a legal sense. It it also speaks of like an arrest warrant. These are charges against the prisoner. That's what it is. So God took your arrest warrant. The charges that were against the prisoner, God took that and he nailed it to the cross and wrote across it, paid in full. Done deal. When Jesus was hanging on the cross and he was about to give up his soul, he said something really unique in the Gospel of John, chapter 19. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, He gave up his spirit. It is finished. It's the word tetelestai in the Greek. Tetelestai. What does that mean? What did Jesus mean? It is finished. What's finished? One person said, tetelestai. The greatest word from the greatest man on the greatest day in all eternity that changed history and destiny for all mankind. Spurgeon said, what a grand utterance. Telestai. Now we're safe. Now we're complete. The sin debt was now discharged completely. The atonement and propitiation for our sin nailed to the cross right on Jesus' body, right there on the tree. He paid the debt in full. Paid. And he says, therefore, Christian, don't lose the significance of this. We were once condemned, but now that debt's completely paid. Look again at verse 15, and it says, Having disarmed the principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. Erdman said the death of Christ was not only a pardon, it was manifest might. It not only canceled the debt, but it gave us a glorious triumph. I preached on this when we were going through Ephesians, but when the Roman army would have a triumph in battle, they'd come back to town and they would have this parade, right? And they'd go through town on, you know, these stallions and have all this stuff and they'd have this big celebration showing their military success. The general would wear a crown and and it signified him as being like either divine or a king. And he rode on this chariot down the streets of Rome and he would give gifts to the people of the the stuff that he got from who he conquered. And these brave warriors would march and they're just all proud and we just defeated them. What they would also do is they drag their enemies along and make a spectacle of their enemies. Imagine being an enemy of Rome and being drugged behind a stallion as they're just marching down the street. There in your notes, Vaughn said Christ in this picture is the conquering general. The powers and authorities are the vanquished enemy displayed as the spoils of battle before the entire universe. Can you imagine what happened just before this? And I know it takes a little artistic liberty, but imagine in your mind's eye for just a minute as they're leading Jesus down the road, carrying his cross, and then he couldn't carry it any longer. And when they finally get him up on the hill, they get him up there on Calvary and they're about to nail him up. You could just imagine Satan kind of rubbing his hands together. I just won. I just won. And at the moment of John 19 30, and Jesus said, It is finished. You could just imagine for all time, right there, Satan going, Uh oh. (laughs) The victory was won on the cross, it was done. It is finished. It is finished. What's finished? Trying to earn daddy's love. It's finished. Trying to make up for my own sin, it's finished. Trying to be good enough, it's finished. You know the problem is? Sometimes we don't believe it's finished. That's the problem. Every spiritual enemy was defeated right there at Calvary. So let's get practical this morning. As we talk about this circumcision and baptism and how Jesus paid the price, Galatians 6.14 Paul said, God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of Jesus Christ, by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. There in your notes. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. I said in the beginning that there are parallels between circumcision and baptism, but they represent two very different covenants. The old covenant was God saying, if you'll do this, then I will do this. And the new covenant is God saying, I did this. And if you'll receive it by faith, there's nothing else that needs to happen. And I praise God, that's us. Because how many times do I fail and think, if I was under the law, they'd have taken me out and stoned me for that one. True story. And again, the Old Testament rituals were mere copies and shadows, but Jesus Christ is the original and the substance. The Old Covenant was temporary because nobody could reach the perfection that was needed. But the New Covenant is permanent. It's eternal because Jesus paid the price and said it's finished. By the way, if I promise you something, I'll probably let you down. If Jesus promises you something... It's yes and amen. The Lord promised in Ezekiel 36, 26, and I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you. The new covenant is ours because he who promised is faithful and he's given us a new circumcised heart. And again, he gave death this death blow. He gave sin a death blow there on the cross. It is finished. In their culture, if you owed a bill and you came to the town square before the elders to pay off that bill as proof of it, they would take the tab that said paid in full and they would nail it right there in the town center. It is finished. That's exactly what they would write on it. Tetelestai. Because... It's finished. And it witnesses. everybody gets to witness. That bill's been paid. You no longer owe it. That's what happened on the cross. And so when we make this inner decision to follow Jesus Christ, we show people by baptism. But the putting off of the sin of the body of flesh happened on Calvary. And all you have to do to have that is receive by faith. God loves you. And desires you to be in heaven with him someday. The only problem is, is heaven is perfect, so you got to be perfect to make it, and not one of us can. And so Jesus, the perfect substitute, took it instead. Then he took our bill that we owed for our sin, wrote to Telestai across it, and nailed it on the cross. It's finished. You're done. And now you're a new creation in Christ. If by simple faith you'll trust Jesus, He desires no one to go to hell. No one. So the question is, will you take your bill that you owe and hand it to Jesus so He could write it as finished on it and nail it to the cross? Or are you going to show up in heaven someday with that in your hand thinking you had to pay it and you never could? That's the question for you this morning. I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. There'll be some elders and their wives in the back if you need prayer this morning. We counted a true blessing to pray for our people. If you have something, go see one of them in the back. They'll pray for you. And for those online, call the church office. We would love to pray with you as well. I'm going to pray and then we're going to worship. But you need to remember, we all owe a bill. Every one of us. And either you're going to pay it or Jesus paid it all. Which one will you take? Let's pray. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you are blessed. If you'd like to find out more info about our church or any other resources like sermon notes or things like that, you can check out our website at livingfaithklamath.com. Make sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe or like us on whatever your favorite podcast app is. You'll find us at Living Faith Fellowship Klamath Falls. Again, be blessed.